Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Greetings, everyone. I'm Vicki Basplega, Director of the Clinical Specialist and Scientist section here at ASHP, and thanks for joining. I'm excited to share with you that today's episode is a curated feature from the exceptional programming from the 2021 ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy the voices of your colleagues as they share the latest clinical information, best practices, and leadership advice at the world's largest gathering of pharmacists. Warren, I'm so glad to be here with all of you today and wanted to share a little bit about working in an interdisciplinary team in primary care to address chronic pain and the importance of working as a team. You know, one thing that I have learned working in the uh, Veterans Health Administration is I've learned so much from the veterans that I work with. And one of the things that they have shared with me is that no mission that they ever had in the military was ever fought alone. And I think that same principle comes into our pain care. Anything that we're facing within our clinics, within our lives, within any of uh, the areas that we're helping a patient with is helping them to realize they're not fighting this alone. And I think focusing here on this slide, we wanted to talk with you a little bit about the critical importance of team-based care and the importance of whole health care, that blue and green circle that you see there reflects our work within the Veterans Health Administration of realizing it's not just the clinical care that's present, it's also helping a person to get reengaged fully in their life. It's addressing things like their family and connection with the family, connection with the community, with their faith base, their whole health exercise, sleep, rest, all of those things together. And that requires an entire team. And we're not in this alone. And really important when we're treating any patient, but also those patients with uh, chronic pain, it's helping them to reconnect with meaning. What is it that brings them hope? How can we reconnect them with hope when they're feeling lost without that? So in the next slide, I'll go into a little bit more about why a team is so critical and perspectives, particularly from suicide prevention. One is if you look at pain intensity, we know that pain intensity intensity is significantly associated with an increase of suicide attempts. So when we're treating patients with chronic pain of realizing that intensity level is also associated with feelings of despair. It can be associated with thoughts about um, harming themselves and attending to that. We know, for example, veterans that report severe pain are 1.41 times more likely to attempt suicide than those in comparison groups. So our attention to pain intensity is particularly critical. Um, Pain interference found to be a critical predictor of suicide uh, ideation in a veteran sample, for example, with those with chronic pain, PTSD, traumatic brain injury. We also know that pain catastrophizing is associated with suicide risk. Um, We also know uh, that there are many comorbidities with chronic pain that we have to be addressing. So all of these different factors, I think, bring in for us an awareness that we need a larger treatment team 
to come in together. I, I put on the screen here just a, a reminder about the importance of hope and that our job as a treatment team is to not only help to treat the medical condition that's present, but the entire being of the person. And our job is to help to ensure that we're instilling hope. One of the reasons why this is particularly critical to me, the first patient that I ever lost to suicide was a patient with chronic pain. And I think it's something that, that I carry with and reminds me in my heart of the importance of attending to chronic pain as part of the whole person's treatment. Um, when I lost that patient many years ago, I was a uh, young psychologist at the time. I wrote a little bit of a poem about it. And my concluding statement in there was this, hope left you, and I'm left again, lost in the internal what-ifs of yesterday. Losing you has left me lost. And as I reflect back on that time period of really thinking through what my job is as part of this treatment team is treating the whole person, helping them to get reconnected with hope, helping them to be reconnected with meaning and the critical importance of that. On the next slide, we talk a little bit about chronic pain and suicide risk generally. We know lifetime prevalence of suicide ideation in people with chronic pain is about 20% and between 5 and 15% for suicide attempts. We know that individuals with chronic pain uh, need to get engaged with a whole health intervention uh, type of treatment in order to help treat the whole person. It's not just the chronic pain, but oftentimes they're dealing with unemployment, disability, um, uh, family relational issues. There may be other harmful habits present that they have engaged in in order to help cope with chronic pain, things like alcohol misuse or drug use. And oftentimes pain impacts so many other factors of well-being, sleep problems. Um, um, issues with uh, uh, functioning at work, issues with functioning at home. There are all of these other different things. And again, it shows the critical importance of treating the entire person. When we also see chronic pain, we also see um, things like hopelessness, feelings of being a burden, Thwarted belongingness, that's all a, a part of theories of what makes one more at risk for suicide. But the good news is that there are many things that we can do in a targeted way together as an interdisciplinary team to help treat the whole person, to help their pain become more managed and to help them increase hope in their lives. And one of that is doing risk assessment, suicide risk assessment but helping to connect people with practical coping strategies, resources, and evidence-based interventions across the continuum of care. So one of the things I'd like to highlight is, well, what, what can we bring in as a treatment team within the primary care setting? And I think the, if you look at how we've developed in primary care, it's not just the physician provider but it's also the role of what's the role of the dietitian, the social worker, the psychologist, the pharmacist, all of these folks coming together, bringing in their expertise for all of those different issues that I just went through. It's critical for integrated chronic pain treatment. One of the things I highlight here on this slide is 
the adaptation, one of the best from a behavioral health perspective, one of the best interventions for chronic pain is cognitive behavioral therapy for chronic pain. That has been shown time and time again through randomized controlled trials, its efficacy. But the problem is getting people to that level of care. Uh, those protocols for cognitive behavioral therapy for chronic pain are often done by clinical health psychologists in specialty pain clinics. And access can be an issue for that particular treatment. So one of the things that the VA has done is work to adapt some of those lengthier treatments to work within a primary care setting. So the Center for Integrated Healthcare created the brief cognitive behavioral therapy for chronic pain that can really be done in about four to five um, interventions of about 20 to 30 minutes in length within the primary care setting, right alongside the pharmacist, the physician, the nurse, the social worker together. So bringing in those elements, and they found incredible results. So that is one part of kind of looking at stepped care is what can we help that patient with right in the primary care setting so they don't have to leave that setting. They may not want to go to specialty care. They may not want to go to a specialty mental health clinic, but bringing in that care right within the setting. So that is one particular thing that, that I wanted to highlight. The other is the, the crucial nature of working across teams. We know that each individual within the patient-aligned care team within that group has their own expertise that can be brought to the table. Whether it's physical therapists or dietitians or social workers, we're all going to be treating pain from a different element. And that suicide and overdose prevention in the chronic pain population requires timely access to treatment, whether it's uh, timely access to behavioral health therapy, where it's dietary changes that need to be making, we need to be moving that right within the clinic. And we can do that by adapting those interventions for a primary care setting. For our pharmacist practitioners, I think it's important to note that within primary care, regardless if we're helping with primary care disease states or pain or mental health, as Lisa mentioned, one of the cornerstones that we practice in is with comprehensive medication management. So back to that point that we're really treating the whole patient and each medication that we're looking at, we're assessing if it is safe, if it is effective for the, for the patient. As the medication expert, as the pharmacist, we have the opportunity to help with medication adherence. And so that's also a large role that we have. With our overall goal is increasing access to care and the quality of care that our patients receive. And over the last almost two years, many of us have gotten the opportunity to increase our abilities and skills with telehealth which was not something that our clinic had been doing a lot of, um, but definitely has increased our opportunities um, as well in increasing our abilities to bill for these services. So I thought a patient example might highlight how the pharmacist is integrated into our team and not just the pharmacist, but as Lisa mentioned, uh, behavioral health providers, mental health therapists, um, kind of the whole team approach that we have in primary care. So JR is a 45-year-old male. His past medical history includes diabetes, hypertension, depression, PTSD, and chronic pain of the lower back, right knee, right shoulder, as well as tobacco use. 
His current medications include insulin glargine, 45 units once daily, lisinopril, 5 milligrams once daily, fluoxetine, 40 milligrams daily, and morphine sulfate, 15 milligrams twice daily. His primary care provider referred him to the behavioral health provider for tobacco cessation, and a referral was also placed to the pharmacist practitioner for depression management. Looking at his PHQ-9 score, which is a measure that can help with depression management, his score was 18 on fluoxetine 40 milligrams daily. His A1C was 9.8%. His visit with the mental health pharmacist practitioner revealed his reporting a loss of interest in activity, increased appetite, poor sleep, uh, as Lisa mentioned, feeling depressed, feelings of guilt, and thoughts that he is a burden to his family. He does, however, deny suicidal thoughts, but does admit that sometimes he wishes he would go to sleep and just not wake up. He admits to poor adherence to his medication that he just sometimes forgets and that he doesn't take his blood glucose regularly because he knows that the number is not what it should be. He also is reporting a new pain complaint of having um, his feet hurting with burning and stinging pain. I think this patient example really highlights the opportunity to provide comprehensive medication management, so treating that whole patient. Again, each medication is assessed for appropriateness, effectiveness, and safety. And for this patient, the fluoxetine was stopped with a PHQ-9 of 18. That is indicating that the medication is not helping his depression. And so it was decided to switch him to duloxetine, which would address his complaints that are seen in his PHQ-9, as well as the new pain complaint of that burning and stinging pain. Along with these changes, uh, insulin adjustments would also be recommended to address the elevated A1C, which also may be contributing to that burning, stinging pain he's experiencing. The patient would likely see the pharmacist practitioner as well as the behavioral health practitioner with coordinated visits that could be completed back-to-back. To Uh, to Dr. Kearney's point, many times the patient doesn't want to go to multiple places to receive care. And so being able to coordinate coordinate that care for our patients where we're able to see them at one one visit, uh, even co-visits together, has been really helpful for our patients. Both the pharmacist practitioner and the behavioral health provider would document these visits and their interactions with the patient and the plan in the electronic medical record. And these notes would be shared with the primary care provider. The primary care provider would be updated on those medication changes from fluoxetine to duloxetine, as well as the new depression or the new complaint regarding his pain. The pharmacist practitioner will continue to follow up with the patient to see again, if that duloxetine is safe appropriate and effective for the depression and the pain. And the behavioral health provider will follow up for tobacco cessation as well as medication adherence. And again, this example highlights that other piece that was discussed earlier about the integration of interprofessional practice. So interprofessional practice, this was highlighted that it's interdisciplinary. JR had his primary care provider a mental health pharmacist practitioner, and a behavioral health pharmacist, all working alongside each other 
to improve his care. Personally, this is my favorite part of my clinic experience. I get to work alongside multiple types of providers, and I get to learn as well as I see the improvements in patient care that we have seen with having true interprofessional practice. This team approach is vital and provides a number of positives. For the patient, they receive better and safer care. For our providers, there's less turnover and we have decreased patient complications. And for the practice site or the health system, there's less admissions and any length of hospital stays are shorter. So this team-based approach and our comprehensive medication management approach started in 2009. And this is how we got there. One, we have an amazing pharmacy director, and uh, I will speak more about her shortly. We also have our 340B outpatient pharmacies that help support our clinical pharmacist activities. In 2009, the clinic had one clinical pharmacist that was at one clinic. In 2011, I started my position as a clinical faculty member, and I was looking for a practice site and I found Virginia Garcia. So in 2011, I started my clinical practice site at that same clinic that the full-time pharmacist was located. Since that time, currently, we now have six and a half full-time pharmacists. There are three clinical faculty members that provide clinical pharmacy services at the practice site. And we have a PGY-1 and two PGY-2 residents. So overall, in this short time, we've had amazing growth within our uh, pharmacist team so that we can provide these interprofessional opportunities. Virginia Garcia Memorial Health Center is a federally qualified health center in the greater Portland metro area. We have five primary care clinics, and as noted on the previous slide, each clinic does have a pharmacist practitioner. They're, these pharmacists all provide comprehensive medication management, along with having collaborative practice agreements for a variety of disease states. So these can include diabetes, hypertension, cholesterol, asthma and COPD, smoking cessation, and substance use. In addition, I am the mental health pharmacist practitioner available within Virginia Garcia. I am located at one primary care clinic and I am there two to three days a week with 30 minute appointments and typically see three to eight patients a day. I do provide comprehensive medication management as the foundation for the services I provide, but also have collaborative practice agreements for depression, anxiety, psychiatric medication monitoring, uh, medication assisted treatment, and I'm a resource for mental health questions ranging from pregnancy, lactation, or adolescence. Although I am in one clinic, I do serve as a resource for the four other clinics where providers are able to send charts for review um, and I can provide telehealth services for patients that are not within the clinic that I currently practice at. In our model, our primary care, our, our primary care provider is in the middle and then they provide the referrals to the rest of the team. So this could be a referral to one of our primary care pharmacist practitioners, uh, 
mental health pharmacist practitioner, myself, or the behavioral health therapist. Our behavioral health therapist does help support our mental health therapist by identifying patients that are most appropriate um, for that level of care and will support the patient in establishing with our mental health therapists. Like similar to, as Lisa described, our pain specialty clinics, we have specialty mental health clinics within the community. Unfortunately, access is frequently a barrier due to long wait times to see prescribers of sometimes over six months. Um, and our patients want to receive care within our clinic. And so our clinic has expanded to support a telehealth psychiatric nurse practitioner, and she does serve all five of our clinics um, and is able to provide strictly telehealth services as she is currently located in Arizona. But that has been vital to improving um, mental health within our primary care setting. Once the primary care pharmacist has, or the primary care provider has decided on a referral, when we were all in clinic together, the preferred method was a warm handoff where the provider or somebody on the provider's team would reach out to the pharmacist and the pharmacist would go into the room same day, introduce ourselves and get the patient scheduled. With the switch to more telehealth clinic visits, we've adapted how we are getting referrals from, from providers. Sometimes this is completed through the electronic medical record through a chat function. When a provider is seeing, or when a provider has a telehealth appointment with a patient and they identify that they should be referred out to the pharmacist or the behavioral health therapist, they'll provide a chat and then allowing us to reach out to the patient the same day, which has been helpful. If that's not done, we do have an internal referral process. And then the patient's team, which includes those usually three primary care providers, a team assistant, a panel care coordinator, and a nurse will work together to get the patient scheduled for us. As the mental health pharmacist, because we do have a team approach, I would have the opportunity to refer the patient back to the primary care provider if I feel like they um, have met their goals or if they may be better served um, by specialty mental health. I also can refer the patient to the behavioral health therapist, which is usually done for most patients because it's such an important piece of mental health management. And again, as I mentioned, that behavioral health therapist may identify if the patient would be better served by mental health therapy. As I mentioned, we do practice with uh, the foundation of comprehensive medication management. So we really focus on a full medication review, uh, treating the whole patient and reviewing each medication to see if it's appropriate, effective, and safe. We do have those clinical practice agreements for specific disease states, and this will allow us to adjust medication, order labs as necessary for the patient. And then we can provide recommendations to the provider for other disease states or other medications um, that have been identified. Our collaboration is really important to our clinic. So as I mentioned, warm handoffs is our preferred method um, to get those patients to see the, patient, the ancillary or support personnel that they need to see. Uh, unfortunately, we've had to adapt to other means, um, but it still is a focus of clinic that we still want patients to be seeing and chatting with who they really need to work with. And the, the question that's always on people's mind is reimbursement. 
And I will be honest, it is complicated and it seems like it changes frequently uh, for our clinic. But briefly, most of our clinical pharmacy services are funded through our 340B program. As I mentioned, we have five primary care clinics, and so we have five 340B um, outpatient pharmacies. We also have a state-coordinated care organization, and as pharmacist practitioners, we are credentialed as providers, and so we bill fee-for-service for face-to-face -for -face and telehealth visits. Our other payers, we will bill incident to the supervising provider for our visits. And we also practice under an alternative payment methodology. So we have a per member per month capitated payments. So these are tied to a variety of performance metrics and our and clinic metrics and the pharmacist practitioners within all, within all the clinics work to support the clinic in meeting these metrics. These metrics have included depression screening, uh, A1Cs, as well as hypertension goals. Again, Virginia Garcia is a federally qualified health center. We have approximately 44,000 patients and almost half are better served in a language other than English and about half are served by Medicaid. One of the metrics I mentioned was depression screening, and this actually started out as a PGY-1 resident project. Uh, many of our pharmacist practitioners do assist our providers for our patients that have diabetes, and the resident looked at the ADA practice guidelines, and there was a recommendation that all patients with diabetes should be screened for depression. So she provided education and all, all pharmacist practitioners were screening patients with the PHQ-2. If they screened positive with that tool, they were then provided a PHQ-9 to complete. And then the pharmacist, the pharmacist practitioner would refer the patient to the PCP uh, with the PHQ-9 information. This project uh, showed that the pharmacists were um, helpful in screening our patients annually with the PHQ-2 as well as following up with the PHQ-9 if needed. And this is now a clinic metric and it is included in a smart phrase in both the provider notes as well as the clinical pharmacist notes uh, to help monitor how, how close we are in meeting this metric. And in 2020, we were at about 60% of our patients being screened annually. Another option or another opportunity that has occurred is, as I mentioned, specialty mental health can be very difficult uh, to get into in our area. And that has resulted in our specialty mental health providers uh, referring patients that are stable on medications back to the primary care provider. Sometimes these are medications that are not frequently prescribed in primary care, like lithium and Depakote. So through working with our pharmacy and therapeutics committee, along with our site medical directors, we developed a monthly report as well as a process for ordering any gaps in care or labs that are required. So I assist the clinics, all five clinics, with reviewing these reports and ordering the labs and sending notes to the team to reach out to the patients so that these medications continue to be safe, safely used in this population. Another big um, 
strength of our clinic is the interprofessional education. All newly hired providers shadow a pharmacist practitioner when they are hired. We also are frequently asked to have learners shadow the pharmacist practitioner. So this includes medical residents, medical students, and PA students. And our pharmacist practitioners are frequently involved in didactic education within the clinic for pharmacy students, physician assistant students, as well as nursing or other education needs that are identified. And so our learners are very important and they are definitely seen as part of our team. We have an emphasis on interprofessional education. When we have pharmacy students or API students, we do have weekly meetings where they learn, they learn beside each other, uh, present case presentations, and have topic discussions. Our API students have also been involved in developing and following through with, with medication use evaluations and they also assist with the psychiatric medication monitoring, and their results are presented to, again, the Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee, as well as the medical site directors. Along with our pharmacy residents, who help precept API students, and also have their own panel of patients and are providing direct patient care services to our patients. So now let's leverage some of those points to build a solid foundation for advancing pharmacist practitioner practice in the primary care setting. So let's start with stakeholder buy-in, right? So for pharmacist advancement of practice in the primary care setting, we're going to need some stakeholder buy-in. So the first step is ensuring that the Pharmacist Collaborative Practice Agreement, or CPA, um, or in the VA, it's the scope of practice, but for purposes of this presentation, I'll just make it simple and call it the CPA, to represent both. Now, to set the stage for this collaborative practice, much of the rationale shared earlier in the presentation to include improving access to care and reduced primary care provider burden are all excellent starting points for getting that buy-in. Now, after all, primary care providers are busy, right? And to really ask them to take on some more of this care um, without any other support is, is going to be a challenge for them and nearly impossible for many of them to consider. So the next component is ensuring pharmacist practitioner competency. For this practice um, expansion and, and really for primary care provider trust, right? Uh, and, and just to be clear, we are talking about pain and mental health care that's appropriate for primary care-based care. So that's generally level one or level two pain management and lower complexity mental health care with a transition of care process to higher levels of care when you need it. We'll come back to the CPA and competency topics in a, a little bit more detail in a few minutes. Now, the third foundational component here includes recognizing the patient impact and engaging the whole team in the importance, the critical importance, I'll say it again, of normalizing access to this needed lower complexity pain and mental health care, because this is really critical to reducing stigma, which has been a major problem um, that has led to health care inequities across the country that now we're all more getting more familiar with, right? And, and this has led to poor outcomes. So we want to be sure to recognize that. And we also want to be sure to recognize the overlap that exists with pain, mental health, substance use disorder, and suicide and overdose prevention, and how those intertwine with other care needs. So when pain and mental health care needs are unaddressed, and other chronic conditions that are routine to primary care, like diabetes and high blood pressure, become 
you know, is the reason for the visit, they become increasingly difficult to adequately treat. Now, it's also much more difficult to engage patients in, patient, in self-care, right? And so when the pain or depression is untreated, that might be the only thing they can think about in that appointment. And so not treating primary care and, and mental health conditions um, when that might be the patient's priority, it becomes a problem. And so the last point here is really the need for a better patient experience and improved health literacy. Health literacy is a real problem in this country, and it also leads to poor outcomes, um, just like stigma and just like healthcare inequities. Now, we can improve the patient's health literacy and experience at the same time by addressing the pain and mental health needs where they prefer to be treated, often in primary care, and with easily understandable education and approach. They look to us and they should be able to um, expect from us that we, as their primary care team, are patient-centered in addressing their care needs and empower them in self-care. But we can only do that when we engage them fully in their care needs. This, of course, is complex, takes time to do it right, and requires a collaborative team-based approach, including the pharmacist um, practitioner. Okay, let's um, visit the CPA in more detail and how it can set the stage for pharmacist integration into primary care-based delivery of lower complexity pain and mental health care. I will use CPA again just um, to encompass the VA scope of practice for simplicity, but the pharmacist collaborative practice is an established practice relationship between a pharmacist and collaborating prescriber that delegates certain patient care functions to the pharmacist. With a CPA, the pharmacist assumes responsibility for specific patient care functions that otherwise go beyond their typical scope of practice, but are aligned with their education and um, training. So patient or population-specific CPA models are generated at the practitioner level between a single or group of pharmacists and a single or group of prescribing providers with agreed-upon processes, standards of care, and treatment direction. This delegation typically um, results in pharmacist-provided collaborative drug therapy management. Um, collaborative practice agreements may already be part of your practice. Of course, this is not a new concept. CPAs have been around since 1963, which started with the Indian Health Service. And clinical pharmacist pra um, practitioner practice integration has really gained momentum, of course, over the last several years. Now, you want to have a population-specific CPA, if you don't already, as the type of CPA that offers the highest level of pharmacist practice authority and maximizes the patient population and impact. CPA functions may include initiation and, and modification of drug therapy, along with other defined roles, um, with, the, with the extent excuse me, of services authorized depending on the state's statutory and regulatory provisions for collaborative practice authority, as well as the terms of the specific agreement between the pharmacist and collaborating practitioners. When collaborative care is optimized, the team-based approach and increased efficiency results in better care coordination and improved overall access to care by leveraging the medication and clinical expertise of the pharmacist to complement the roles of the other team members. When pharmacists have prescriptive authority and provide this care, um, the this decreases the visits or calls needed to the collaborating provider for ongoing chronic disease state management, opening up time for that prescriber to see new patients or address more acute care needs with their existing panel. So with 49 of 50 states allowing pharmacists to enter into CPAs, the exception being Delaware, most clinical pharmacist practitioners will practice under a CPA. A CPA is actually not required for collaborative practice, but can be very helpful in defining the functions and pharmacists 
um, or, and functions of the pharmacist, excuse me, and the care model to improve efficiency and effectiveness of collaborative care delivery. This can be particularly helpful in situations when pharmacist practice is expanding from those more traditional primary care roles to include lower complexity pain and mental health care. The CPA can really help the team have a solid understanding of the pharmacist practice, practitioner roles in this practice advancement. Now, remember the CPA should align with the pharmacist education, training, and competency. So let's back up to the competency piece. Prior to updating the CPA, we of course want the pharmacist practitioner competency to be in place for this pain and mental health care. Now, this is critical, of course, to ensuring provider and team trust and pharmacist competence to take on these new patient care roles. In the VA, we use various tools and resources to foster um, pharmacist practitioner competency expansion. So for the purposes of this presentation, this will be our primary care pharmacists who already have a scope of practice. We have a competency assessment forms, many of them, but we have some for both pain and mental health that have uh, maybe utilized by the clinical pharmacist practitioners to self-assess their training needs and identify resources for that training. Other postgraduate training methods may include board certification. Um, it could also include shadowing other seasoned practitioners during patient care, simulation training. We've done some three-day clinical pharmacy boot camp training and recordings of those. Um, so they can be um, seen on demand and one-on-one and -on -one longitudinal mentorship. Now for pharmacists with a scope of practice, we use our peer-based clinical care review process to ensure ongoing competency. This generally consists of a review of a set number of patient care encounters on a scheduled basis um, by another pharmacist competent in that practice area. And these reviews are part of the recredentialing process that's required over two years. Uh, this process is identical to other providers who have prescribing privileges in the VA, and it's overseen by the executive committee of the medical staff uh, at the facility level. So while this is a robust process, sometimes trust is a challenge, especially with new practices or practice expansion, and other strategies may be used to ensure provider trust um, when taking on these new roles. So that could be, mean that our pharmacists work alongside the providers for, for some initial patient care appointments while continuing to market their roles and ensure a shared understanding of those roles. The next slide here is really a, simply a, a compendium of resources, if you will, a summary, a, a collection for pharmacist training pertinent to primary care-based pain management and mental health care. You can see um, there's a lot of them. There are categories for safe pain care, mental health care, SBIRT, which is screening, brief intervention, and referral for treatment. Um, also alcohol use disorder and opioid use disorder or opioid addiction care, and overdose and suicide prevention. Let me stress again that these are all germane to primary care and ultimately should be the gold standard of care that we offer in the primary care setting. And I'll also mention that we are always happy to share any VA resources that I mentioned earlier um, at any time. So feel free to reach out for those. Now switching gears, let's talk a little bit about the core tenets of CMM or comprehensive medication management, the bread and butter of clinical pharmacy practice. First, CMM helps meet a societal need with more than 4,000, I mean 4 billion, excuse me, 4 billion prescriptions written annually um, with more than 80% of patients who visit primary care walking out the door with a prescription. Uh, this is a big deal, right? And, and it actually costs, morbidity and mortality related to prescriptions costs the U.S. about $500 billion a year. So 
Clinical pharmacist practitioners really have a unique role and responsibility as a medication expert to provide CMM and in the course of care, delivery to optimize medication use and address all of the patient's medication-related needs. So keep in mind that CMM is a patient-centered approach. Um, it keeps the patient preferences and all the care needs in the process in mind when formulating care plans. And the CMM approach to care also serves to develop patient trust and nurture a caring and ongoing patient-pharmacist relationship. And finally, pharmacist-driven CMM is intended to be part of the collaborative care um, package, really. And all pharmacist practitioners, regardless of practice location, should really be dedicated to the CMM philosophy of practice. The CMM care process has five parts. So just to quickly go over them, first, collect and analyze information. Second, to assess the information and formulate a prioritized a complete problem list. Third, um, to develop the care plan, to implement the care plan, and then provide appropriate and timely follow-up and monitoring. This does not mean the pharmacist practitioner necessarily addresses all problems independently, um, but particularly those that fall outside of the CPA, right? But meaning more so that the care needs should be considered and addressed in some fashion as part of the care process. So as a pharmacist practitioner, what is your potential here? What pain and mental health care can you offer to your patients in primary care? So it really starts with having the conversation with your patients around mental health conditions and pain management needs. We can all ask them about those things, right? <laughs> and we should. And then we, probably, we might need to get a little more comfortable with some of the other concepts around things like screening, brief intervention, and referral for treatment. There's a lot of great resources about a lot of these concepts that are on this slide that may feel uncomfortable at the moment, um, but after a little bit of practice can feel a lot more comfortable. Risk mitigation to include PDMP monitoring and urine drug screening. Um, we could also do some uh, looking at for high-risk opioid use or high-risk opioid combination use, high dosing, and think about addressing that. We can provide overdose education and prescribe naloxone. We can do that in every state, right? Uh, or at least dispense naloxone. And we can also screen for suicide risk and address that. We can distribute sterile syringes for patients who may benefit. We can do population health and outreach to high-risk patients. Um, we can also provide simple patient and caregiver education. So thinking about safe pain and mental health care is really a big opportunity, regardless of the reason for referral. So to wrap up practice foundation and preparing for pharmacist practitioner expansion, uh, we, we have to do three things. We have to have a vision, we have to prepare, and then we have to integrate. So our vision, we need to know what our opportunity looks like. What roles will the pharmacists have on the team? What gaps in care exist? And how will you sell it to get the buy-in with your stakeholders? All important pieces to move to the next phase of preparing. So we need to prepare for integration by ensuring training and competency, of course, um, getting that CPA done or updated, outlining how referrals will be made to the pharmacist, the pharmacist appointment space and clinic schedule, how communication will happen and resources for care needs and any policies that should be followed. And then, prepare for integration. So now we're prepared, prepared for integration, actually. So we want to integrate. We must establish scheduling support, plan to attend team meetings, routinely market these services, and then just incorporate this into practice. So if it's brand new, working alongside those providers again in the beginning goes a long way to establish trust. So be innovative and individualizing the individualize the plan to what will work best for your scenario. Thanks so much for listening in today. Be sure to follow us at ASHB Official 
wherever you listen to your podcasts and check back soon to hear more featurettes from the 2021 ACHB Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Until then, this is Vicki Basiliga from ACHB Official, and thank you for all you do for your patients. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.